My brothers, shouts Aragorn to his troops, I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all the bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. So the king speaks to all the armies of men as they stand before the black gate ready to face an enemy that they cannot defeat. All their courage is as a candle blown in the wind. It's in this context that Aragorn straightens his back, rides forward, and lifts his voice to rouse his soldiers. He wants them to take heart. And so he fans into full flame what was once a flickering candle with his words. As we come to Ephesians chapter 3 this morning, we find that Paul is doing precisely the same thing for these Ephesian Christians. He recognizes that his imprisonment, which had lasted to about three years at this point, might be a source of great discouragement to the people. If Paul really is God's man, his chosen instrument, if people, all people, Jew and Gentile alike, can really have peace with one another and peace with God. If this message is true, how could God let Paul stay in prison? And so, Paul seeks to address this concern in our passage this morning. And we find that he gets us to this primary point, which is all the way down there in verse 13, when he says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. That's the main idea this morning. Do not lose heart. It's also the exhortation. Don't lose heart because God is at work. God is working in the gospel. He's working in the lives of His people. He's working in your life. And God is working in all of history. Everything is unfolding according to His plan and right on schedule. Let's pray together and we'll begin. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this time that we have spent together submitting ourselves to it, learning from it, learning what it is You would have to say to us. <clears throat> we pray that You would help us Help us to silence all those things that would distract us from You. Help us to set our hearts and our affection on You. Lord, we have come to encounter You this morning. To encourage one another as we do so. Help us to sense Your Spirit among us. Help us to hear what You would say. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, 
how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that has been realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This whole section comes as a parenthetical digression. It's a fancy way of saying Paul goes on a rabbit trail. Right? You'll, you'll notice in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, For this reason I, Paul, and he's getting ready to pray for the Ephesians, but he interrupts himself once he gets to that point where he says, I'm a prisoner. It's almost like a, a spirit-inspired light bulb goes off. And he goes, oh yeah, I need to address that. And you'll see he picks this theme up back in verse 14. For this reason, he says again, I bow my knees before the Father. And then he's going to pray that the Ephesians will be able to have the power to understand the love of God for them. But, but in between, he wants them to be encouraged about what God has done and is doing in their midst. And so the first source of encouragement is the fact that God is at work in the gospel. That's what Paul's talking about when he talks about this mystery. Look with me in, in verse 3 again. It says, How the mystery was made known to, be, to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then referring to the mystery, he says that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. When Paul says mystery, he's not talking like, well, it's a mystery, we'll never know. Right? He's not referring to some kind of esoteric knowledge that is only reserved for a particular few. But when Paul says mystery here, indeed, when the Bible uses the word mystery, it means something that was once hidden or not clearly perceived that God has now revealed so that it can be understood. It's sort of like uh, if you've ever seen The Sixth Sense, right? At the end of the movie, you find out, it's revealed to you that Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. Sorry if you are like way late on that and you haven't seen it. It's, it's still great. But what happens is if you re-watch the movie, you think to yourself, how did I miss that he was dead the whole time? I mean, the clues were sprinkled throughout the whole deal. So likewise, God's work in history, 
what he was doing specifically when it comes to reconciling man to himself in Christ was once hidden. It wasn't always clear. But the clues about what he was doing are apparent on this side of Calvary. So that now when we open up our Old Testament and we read it, we can see how every passage is pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. How all the promises that God made in the Old Covenant have been fulfilled in the New Covenant. We can see that Christ was always at the very center of God's plan for the world. And so Paul says the secret of this mystery, that this reality was made evident to me. Jesus told me about it. Not just me, but the other apostles and the other prophets. The Spirit has revealed this to us. We didn't figure it out on our own. God showed us. And he's very explicit about what the mystery is. That in Jesus, Gentiles are united to Israel without adhering to Jewish traditions or laws. In Christ, Gentiles, along with believing Jews, are counted as Abraham's offspring. Not because of their ancestry or their lineage, but because of their faith. Right? Remember Paul tells us in Galatians 3, it is those who have faith that are the sons and daughters of Abraham. And so Paul is, is showing us that the heirs to the promises of God are not those who come from a particular ethnicity, geography, or background. Those who are heirs to the promises of God are those who have faith in Christ Jesus, who are unified in Christ Jesus as members of the same body. This is quite incredible. And it would have caused quite a bit of a stir. Because you see, the controversy isn't necessarily that Gentiles are included in the people of God, right? In the Old Covenant, but plenty of Gentiles proselytized. They joined Israel, right? But when they joined Israel, they had to follow all the customs and traditions, right? If you were going to join Israel as a Gentile, you had to be circumcised. You're going to have to offer sacrifices. The controversy here is that not necessarily about who is included, but how they are included. God's plan has always been to redeem all the nations to himself, people from every tongue and tribe. But how he would do this is, is even greater than anyone could have anticipated. And we learned a little bit about that last week in chapter 2, and we see that Jesus fulfills the law and abolishes that dividing wall of hostility, that natural separation between Jew and Gentile. And so Paul is saying here, as he does throughout the New Testament, that those who have peace with God are those who are united to Jesus. It's not on the basis of any ritual behavior. Later he'll say, for circumcision counts for nothing, nor uncircumcision. But what counts is a new creation, the new birth, knowing Jesus Christ. To see just how upsetting this is, we could look at Acts chapter 21. Paul is actually going through a purification ritual that lasts about seven days. And we read this. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on it. 
crying out, Men of Israel, help! This man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even bought, brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And this is what lands Paul in prison. They recognize that Paul is preaching salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that no adherence to the law is necessary. And the Jews in Jerusalem go, this is a threat to our whole way of life. He's going to destroy all of these rituals that we've practiced since forever. And here's the rub. They were right. They were right because the gospel means that the law has been fulfilled. It means that the the old temple made with hands is superfluous. It means that the priesthood belongs to all believers who have access to God through Christ by the Spirit. People of God can now enjoy God together because they have been made His holy temple. He doesn't dwell in a temple made with hands. That's not how he ultimately wanted to reveal himself. No, ultimately, the old covenant temple pointed us to Christ, who was the tabernacle in the flesh, right? Took on flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And then Christ's people, in whom God now lives. We see that at the end of chapter 2. when Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is what Paul says about the church, about those who are united together in Christ Jesus our Lord, that God dwells in them. God dwells in his people. He displays his glory not in a building in Jerusalem. He displays his glory in the thousands and thousands of local churches like this one sprinkled across the globe. God says, you want to know what I am like? Here are my people. God has reconciled Jew and Gentile, black and white, Cuban and Asian, people from all different backgrounds and nationalities together in Christ is a glorious truth. We've been made one new man. One new humanity, as Paul says in chapter 2. We, we are one body of Christ. We share in one Spirit. And, and what that means is that There are no second-class Christians. You ever been on an airplane, and if you're like me, um, you have to fly coach all the time. Uh, And so so maybe you've had that experience where where you are walking down the airplane aisle, you're you're boarding, and you're looking at that section known as first class, and you see those chairs, man, they look so spacious. All these special treats up there, extra leg room. And then, like, you get back to coach where you're going to sit. And there's your, like, eeny bitty, like, middle seat, right? 
You're like trying to figure out a way how you're going to sit in there, and it's miserable. I think so many of us wrongly think of the Christian life in sort of that way. Right, right. They're, they're, they're your first-class Christians, right? They came from the right family. They, they've made all the right choices in life. Things are going pretty well for them, and those, those are the Christians that God really loves. And you and the rest of us, you know, we're just, we're just back in coach. We're, we're, we're the lesser than Christians sit. Friends, Paul is undermining that in verse 6. We are fellow heirs. Not members of different bodies with one better than the other. Members of the, the same body, body of Christ. Not partakers of different promises. Partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. You, you see, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, all of us come to God on the same basis. And that basis is not our maleness, it's not our femaleness, it's not our ethnicity. The basis upon which we come to God is the blood of Christ. Therefore, when we are adopted into the family of God, we're adopted on the same basis to an equal inheritance. Friends, this means there is no second-class citizenship in God's kingdom. If you are in the family of God, there is not a kind of second tier for you. In Christ, you are loved and accepted fully and finally. All the blessings of God are yours. What an incredible reality. It all comes to us by the blood of Jesus. And we can come to enjoy this wonderful gift by turning from our sins and ourselves and saying, God, I am a mess. I am a sinner. I am in rebellion against You. I need You to save me. I don't want to know You as judge. I want to know You as Father. And he will welcome you. Christ gives to all that invitation of Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Buy without money? Well, yeah. Christ has already paid. We can come to Christ because He's the bread of life. He will satisfy. We can come to Christ. He is the water of life. In Him we will discover what it is to truly live. Non-Christian, I implore you, Come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. This is what it is to become a Christian. It's to simply turn from your sin and to trust Christ. You don't, you don't need an advanced degree to become a Christian. Becoming a Christian doesn't require a 12-step program it's not clean yourself up and act right and then be made right with God. Becoming a Christian is simply coming to Jesus and trusting Him. He loves you right where you are. Now, don't, don't get me wrong here. He loves you right where you are, but He loves you too much to leave you there. So, so you come to Jesus and he, he will love you and you, you will be redeemed 
but he's also going to change everything about you. He's going to make you more like him. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you to believe and to think about what this gospel means to you. Talk to, to any church member here about it this afternoon over lunch. Discuss the gospel. Discuss how Jesus saves sinners. Christian, what I want you to recognize is that Paul's gospel is true. We can have peace with God. And it's working. Do not be discouraged when it feels like the gospel is failing and that the world's victory over the church seems only a matter of time. Friends, God has been declared dead before. It didn't stick. The church has been told it was irrelevant in the past, on the brink of extinction. We're still here. Jesus cannot and will not fail. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. Take heart. God is at work. He was at work in the past under the old covenant before He revealed just what He was up to in Christ. And He is at work in our world right now in ways that we can't begin to comprehend. Once in the new heavens and new earth, perhaps we will. God is working in the Gospel. Things are unfolding according to plan. And even though Paul is in prison, God was at work in his life. Look with me at verse 2. Actually, we'll start in verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given me for you, talking about the stewardship he's been given, so now drop down to verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul is God's chosen instrument. He has a stewardship, an administration, a, a responsibility to preach. And yet, he is in prison. And so that this prompts that question, how could Paul be in prison if he's supposed to be preaching the gospel to all nations? Has God's plan failed? Paul says, not at all. Notice how he categorizes his imprisonment in verse 1. I, Paul, a prisoner of Rome. No, though he was in prison in Rome. I, Paul, a prisoner of Nero. No, though he was a prisoner of Nero. Well, what's he say? I, Paul, a prisoner of of Christ Jesus. Paul recognizes 
that the only way that he could possibly be in prison is if the God who has determined the times and places we should live determined that he would be in prison. Paul understands that all things, right, if we look back at verse 11 in chapter 1, happen according to the purpose of God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Indeed, evil men and evil beings do evil things for which they are accountable. But the devil is still God's devil. We read about it in the book of Job earlier. That scene where the adversary comes before God wanting to torment Job. And God ordains that it should be so. And one of the things that happens as a result of reading Job and reading the Bible, as we'll see a little bit more in a moment here, is that it bumps up against our naturalistic presuppositions. So, so many of us act as if the world that we see is all that there is, is all that God created. When the reality is, God has created an entire realm filled with angels and demons and everything in between. And some of the things that happen in the seen realm impact and are directly related to what's going on in the unseen realm. Love that John Piper quote. He says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you might be aware of three of them. We could amend the statement in, in Job's case, right? God is doing 10,000 things in your life. You might be aware of none of them. Right, Job, Job doesn't know his story is going to be kept in Scripture. Job doesn't know any of the answers to the why questions about his tremendous suffering. God never answers why. He answers with who. At the end of Job, God reminds Job that he's God, that he's the, the Creator, that he's good, and that he's just, and that he's wise. And Job, having that vision of God, goes, I don't have any grounds to question or accuse you. You're right. I think similarly when we think of suffering, as Christians, we, we automatically think of that story of Joseph. Right? His brothers sell him into slavery, put him in, in the depths of a pit. He goes to prison He's unjustly accused of sexual misconduct. He's forgotten while he's in prison after he interprets a dream. The guy gets out and he's like, remember me, help me get out of here. The guy forgets him. And then eventually he is raised up to become the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And he's never told explicitly why he had to go through all those hardships, years of suffering. But he knows who God is. And he's able to discern at least one reason. We read it in verse 20 of Genesis chapter 50. Joseph says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? His brothers are worried that he's going to just take them out. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are 
today. Through all His suffering, through all His hardship, the providential hand of God was holding Job and moving everything along. From His time spent in the depths of the pit, was time spent exalted to the right hand of Egypt's ruler. God was at work. So too in the life of Jesus Christ. When He was in the depths of the pit, suffering on the cross, the full wrath of God due to sinners, due to His church, due to you and me, God was there. God planned it. And when He was raised to God's right hand and enthroned, God was there. He planned it. Jesus knew this. He knew that that God is the sovereign ruler over everything in the universe. He knew that there are no maverick molecules out there. That nothing happens according to chance. That we are not the product of a world wound up and then left to run on its own. Or the product of of blind chance. Now Jesus knew that God has ordained all that is. That God has the whole world in His hands. Paul's calling himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus reminds me of Jesus' words to Pilate. Remember, Pilate says to him in, in John 19, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus knew he was born to die. Jesus knew his mission was to save sinners. And Jesus knew It would all be worth it. He knew what Peter would preach in Acts 2, verse 22, when he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wondrous signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. The cross was according to the definite plan of God. So so what's the encouragement here? The encouragement is this. Just as Paul was with Job and Joseph and Jesus working out the details of their lives, so too He's working out the details in Paul's life, in Paul's imprisonment. And the encouragement for you is that God, Sister Christian, is working out all the details of your life in the same way that He did for Job and Joseph and Jesus and Paul. God is sovereign. He rules the world. 
your suffering is not for nothing. God is doing 10,000 things in your suffering. You might be aware of three of them or none of them. But you can trust, even though you don't know the why, you can trust the who. You can trust, not the band, the who. You can trust God. I do want to point out at least three benefits of Christian suffering. Three benefits. First, Christians who suffer are made closer to Jesus. Christians who suffer are made closer to Jesus. I love the C.S. Lewis quote that goes this way. He says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain? Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse the deaf world. There is an intimacy with God that we get to enter into in the midst of suffering that otherwise is unknown to us. When we're in our comfort, we think, I, I might pray later. When we are in our pains, we must pray now. You understand this in your own life, what it is to cry out to God from the pit of despair and to say, God, I need you. There is a special intimacy with God that only can be found when one is walking with Jesus through the valley of the shadow of death. Christians who suffer are made closer to Jesus. Secondly, Christians who suffer are made more like Jesus. Romans 8.28-29 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for the good of those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined, listen to what He predestined us to, among other things, but I want to see this thing, He predestined them to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. God is at work in your suffering, making you more like Jesus. This is why James can write in James chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The idea is that you would grow up into maturity in Christ. When we suffer, we suffer well, we are being conformed. God is at work shaping us like a sculptor more and more into the image of Jesus. Christians who suffer are made more like Jesus. And lastly, Christians who suffer are storing up glory for themselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. So we do not lose heart, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day after day. For this light momentary affliction, Paul does not mean to say our sufferings in this world are small and insignificant. What he means to say is they're, they're light in comparison to what's to come in glory. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us 
an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see that in verse 17? This light momentary affliction. Suffering is preparing for us, I think you can legitimately translate this, producing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Your suffering, at least one of the the results of it, is that God is going to turn that suffering into glory. That's an incredible thought. And I don't know all the details. But it's true. Paul even says that his suffering isn't just for glory in the future, but for the Gentiles' glory at that time. Do you see that in verse 13? I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. Why? Because it's for your glory. My suffering, which is your glory. Probably their salvation, their edification in Christ. Paul's imprisonment wasn't an unfortunate event. Paul's imprisonment was not like, you know, the devil overcame God's plan and will, and so now Paul's in prison, and poor old God, he has to learn how to make lemonade with some lemons. No. God is in control. Paul's imprisonment was for many reasons. One of which is so that we could have large swaths of our New Testament. God is at work. He was at work in Paul's life, and he is at work in your life. Your suffering is never for nothing. You might be in a really hard place right now. You might be in a good place. I want you to know God God will meet you in both places. But especially if you are in the midst of hardship, God has not left you. Draw near to Him, and He will draw near to you. Do not lose heart. God is at work in your life. Lastly, Paul wants the Ephesians to know that God is at work in history. Notice the two things he's called to, he lays out in verses 8 and 9, and then he gives us the purpose of those responsibilities in verse 10. He says, To me, though I'm the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, what is the plan of the mystery, he's already told us about the mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things. So so why am I to preach the mystery of Christ crucified, the mystery of peace with God for Jew and Gentile alike? Why is Paul to to preach these things? What's the purpose? Verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. The church is the focus of God's plan in history. God had a plan from the very beginning 
to make His wisdom known through the church. And He not only planned to make His wisdom in the Gospel, His unfathomable wisdom known through the church, not, not just to other human beings, but also to make His wisdom known among all those beings that exist in the unseen realm. I love John Stott's illustration for this. He says this, History is the theater. The world is the stage. And church members in every land are the actors. God Himself has written the play. He directs and produces it. Act by act, scene by scene, the story continues to unfold. But who is the audience? The audience is the cosmic intelligences the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. We are to think of those rulers and authorities as spectators of the drama of salvation. Those things, our salvation, those things into which angels long to look, they they look at the church and they, they see the wisdom of God and they give Him glory. Those hostile powers, they they look at the church and they see the wisdom of God and their jaws drop because they can't believe it. And they are enraged. What they thought was for their victory has brought about their defeat. For God had planned to bring about the death of death through the death of Christ. This is an incredible truth. That the church is the vehicle through which God has decided and determined to display His glory. Us. The reason the Bible says His power is made perfect in weakness. God is showing Himself through the church. It's almost like um, when a... (laughs) Everything is sports. Uh, It's like when a a sports team wins a championship. Maybe you remember uh, in 2020, actually, yeah, 2021, whatever the last Super Bowl was, when the Buccaneers won, right, with me, uh, they had a big parade. And it was unlike any parade I'd seen before in regards to celebration, right? They did a flotilla, which is a bunch of boats going down a river, and and they were just celebrating their great victory. Tom Brady at one point takes the trophy and, like, throws it from one boat to the other, And it's just this incredible celebration. Friends, the church is like that. Principalities and the powers look on and the angels rejoice at the great victory won by Christ. And the hostile powers shake their heads. They cannot believe what God has done. So Paul, outlining these things, letting the Ephesians know the gospel, it works. God is working in the gospel. God is working in my life. God's working in in your life. And God is working in all of history to bring about His purposes, to display His glory to the seen and the unseen realm. Because of all of that, don't let my imprisonment cause you discouragement. That's what he gets us in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering. Brothers and sisters, let us hear Paul's words. Do not lose heart. All of these things are still true. 
God is still working in the Gospel. God is working in your life. And God is working in all of history. He's working all things together according to the counsel of His will. He's working all things together for the good of those who love Him. That's you and me, sister Christian, brother Christian. That's us. That's the church. And so we need not lose heart. Indeed, Jesus was right when He said, you will have trouble in this world. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we come to You this morning and we confess our weakness, our sinfulness, and our need of You. Lord, we confess that we have this past week looked to other things to be our sources of satisfaction. We confess that we have failed to be grateful for all the many gifts You give us each day. We have griped and grumbled. We are a forgetful people. We pray that You would remind us this morning of the wonderful grace that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. You would remind us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together of the cost of our salvation and of the certainty of our future. Help us to look back with awe and wonder and look forward to that celebration. Cause us to marvel at Your great wisdom in bringing us together in Christ. Lord, we love You. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.